0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There is a growing body of literature that explores the relationship between psychology and politics, and that's something that's been a topic of considerable interest to me of late. If you're in the U.S., there is a good chance you've come across some of these studies, as quite a few of them have received you know, a decent amount of media attention. Uh, so you might have heard about, for example, studies that um, look at traits like the disgust reaction and how that seems to be positively correlated. With political conservatism. Uh, here in the U.S., we, you know, we've been wrestling domestically with the specter of authoritarianism. Uh, so n- not surprisingly, there's been a slew of papers looking at personality traits, you know, some of which may actually have genetic components to them that predispose certain people toward acceptance of or even a preference for authoritarian leaders or, or political styles. But frustratingly, I haven't seen a whole lot of this applied to China. So when I came across a still unpublished paper a couple of months ago by Rory Truax, a scholar at Princeton, I esteem, when I came across this paper that looked at potential associations between certain personality traits and political discontent in China, I was naturally intrigued. It's a great paper. Uh, once you get your head around all the methodology and the statistics and such, uh, and if you do go to uh rorytruax.com, you'll see it there among his recent papers. It's called Political Discontent. In China is associated with isolating personality traits. With the holidays now behind us, we were finally able to schedule some time to really dig into the paper, which again, I found really fascinating. Rory is Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton. And listeners to the show may remember him from a show that we did about a paper he and and Sheena Greitens co-authored, where they looked at... um, whether China scholars are engaging in Uh, self-censorship. Nason Mokbubi joined us on that show. Rory, man, it's been too long. Uh, Welcome back to Seneca at last.
1: It has been a long time, and I remember seeing you in Chapel Hill, and I think we got barbecue uh, back in the before times, and so hopefully that can happen again someday. Yeah,
0: the before times, prelapsarian ages. Yeah, yeah, barbecue (laughs) is on the menu. So, Rory, um, this paper is another contribution uh, to an increasingly rich catalog of papers and monographs that look at authoritarian resilience in China, right? Uh, Not too long ago, I had Manfred Elfstrom on the show, the University of British Columbia. We were talking about his book on workers and protest in China, another book that I think, you know, well, it falls very, very much in that category. And as we were chatting, I just kind of rattled off uh, the names of quite a number of guests that I've had on the show are people you know who I you know have have been in in dialogue with, who've uh, written about one aspect of this topic or another. It, it strikes me that authoritarian resilience is something of an obsession for younger American political scientists. I am not exaggerating when I estimate that half of the assistant and associate professors that I know who work on China and now teach in political science departments do at least some of their work, perhaps even the lion's share of their work. Uh, the best-known work, on some facet of authoritarian resilience. So uh, it's, here's you, Rory, it's Manfred, there's Sheena, who we've mentioned, uh, Maria Repnikova, Christian Sirace, Dan Mattingly, um, Molly Roberts, Jennifer Pan. Uh, I mean, these are just off the top of my head, so I'm sure I could come up with many more. My question is, <laughs> what's up with that, Rory?
1: Well, that's a good question, and now that you, you say all those names... It does seem to be something of a trend. And I I would say that part of that reflects a societal conversation about China. Right. So there's this general narrative, certainly in the popular media, that always paints the CCP as inherently unstable. And there's a certain collapsism that exists in our our own political discourse about China, sort of assuming that this is a, a system that's doomed to fail at some point. Um, and in political science, we, a lot most political scientists I know who are China scholars would, would argue against that point of view. And we draw heavily on this, this piece, which you referenced, which is by Andrew Nathan about authoritarian resilience. And it just points out to the many, many features of the CCP that have allowed it to last this long. And so I, I tend to think of that piece and that concept as sort of a jumping off point. For us to think about some of the features of, of the CCPS regime. And it is unusual. I think that's part of the reason why we write about this, is most authoritarian regimes live sort of brutish, short, violent existences. And this is a very successful party, a very successful regime. And so I think that's that's the reason why we get into it that way. But I think in the end, what what we're seeing is people are delving into different aspects of the Chinese political system and just trying to understand them as they operate, uh, right? So you have Manfred working on labor and someone like Molly working on censorship and Maria working on uh, media and and other things. And so, um, and that's consistent with the long tradition of Chinese politics of just trying to understand these institutions and and aspects of society as well as we can. I think there is a tendency to assume a lot of these practices or sort of nature of political participation in China is indicative of, of frailty and collapse in the system, right? So you think about protests and so forth. A lot of people see protest figures in China, and they assume that this indicates that people hate the government and it's, it's on the verge of collapse. And so I think a lot of people are arguing against that type of that type of simplistic logic. Yeah, no, I, I totally I think you're, you're, you're completely right on that um, that there is
0: this narrative, you know in, in sort of public discussion about China, this kind of expectation um, that's been kind of confounded, so there's a little bit of residue of that. Um, I think maybe maybe for a lot of people. And you guys are probably a lot a little too young for this to have been the kind of motive force in this, but still, you know, there's a lot of overhang from the fact that the you know the end of the Cold War came right on the heels of the suppression of, of the Tiananmen protests, and you know so you saw the USSR dissolve, you saw communist rule end throughout the Warsaw Pact, but somehow it didn't in China, and so therein lies the mystery, right? I mean, so I think a lot of people. We're still sort of thinking about that in the background, maybe subliminally. But yeah, you're right. There, Years ago, I was chatting with this friend of mine, uh, this guy named Matt Stinson, uh, who's an American who's been living in Tianjin for a, a very long time, uh, 20 years or so. He observed that, you know, America's great question about China always seems to boil down to, why don't you people hate your government as much as I
1: think you should? which i think yeah no and there's uh, and certainly and, and i think we'll talk about this more in our discussion today um when you present information like data that we have from public opinion in china that suggests that chinese people not only don't hate their government but actually like their government support the political system you sort of run into that line of thinking of and people say oh that must not be true of course they must they must dislike it or something like that. So I think there's, frankly, a little bit of wishful thinking as people impute their own ways of thinking or their own desires onto the Chinese political system. The, the one thing I wanted to add uh, to our brief discussion of, of resilience is I think a lot of the reason why people are, are writing about this topic, again, is because a lot of the features of the Chinese political system that people were identifying, Andrew Nathan in particular, were identifying in the 2000s those seem to be eroding, right? And so to fit your narrative, right? So the 1990s were about people expecting the party to fall. It didn't fall in 1989, but it it sure looked brittle. Um, And then the 2000s roll around, they had a successful leadership transition and people started to write about how the party was institutionalized, but it also had village elections and all these other things going on that suggested that people had some mechanisms to voice their preferences, right? right? And so now a lot of those those practices, and certainly like leadership, succession, institutionalization, those seem to be eroding under Xi Jinping, certainly civil society as well. And so then the question is, well, is there sort of articles written about authoritarian resilience 2.0, or like, what is the party losing its resilience? Is it more fragile than it used to be? Um, And so there's a renewed conversation because, of of course, the China we see in 2022 is quite different than the, the China Andrew Nathan was writing about in 2002. And I think that's part of the part of the scholarly narrative. Oh, uh, no, for sure. And yeah, I mean, it's they don't just seem to be eroding. They
0: are eroding, right? Uh, these <laughs> Anyway, you you alluded to the fact that that there's always that that skepticism that you greeted with when you do any kind of social science research in China that relies on surveys, questionnaires, right? There's a lot of methodology in your paper, as I alluded to. Uh, but I think you're really good at putting that in layman's terms, but let's, let's go right to that question that you raised that one unavoidable methodological issue that always comes up anytime, you know, you talk about uh, regime support in China or what appears to be regime support. There's always going be people, people that say that, you know, you can't get honest responses in a media controlled environment like China. There's always this kind of implicit assumption on a lot, part of a lot of people that if you, you know, give the wrong answer on a, on a, you know, survey, you hear a knock at your door at 3am. <laughs> so yeah, th- yeah, this is claim of, you know, preference falsification, uh, to use the, the the term of art. The jargony yeah. term.
1: Yeah, let, let me just sort of outline a little bit about what that concept is, and and why it's an issue we all have to grapple with in survey research in China. So the, the basic concern is that in authoritarian systems, people are nervous about voicing their true opinions. Right. Um, and and there's a, the idea of preference falsification is that people will say one thing in public and feel another thing in private. And and certainly that behavior exists as a phenomenon, not just in social science, in, in authoritarian settings. It exists at Thanksgiving dinner when you don't really feel like really talking about politics or whatever it is. So people, people do these sort of subtle lies all the right. time. Um, but the question is, is when we do a survey and we see that people in an authoritarian system, voice support for their government, should we believe that or should we chalk that up to their being, they're scared or is it something in between? And that's, that's a motive. That's a question that's actually motivated a lot of my recent work is to try to unpack that a little bit. And I think probably most of your listeners are, are aware of this, but I would just say it one more time in case, in case some folks aren't, is that the one, the most robust finding we have about public opinion in China is that Chinese citizens voice extremely high levels of support for their government. Uh, That is every single survey I've ever looked at going back decades now has that feature to it. And in fact, Chinese citizens voice higher levels of support for their government than any other people in the world other than I believe Vietnam. Hmm. So then the question is, is that real? Is it something else? There's some people that believe that like when Chinese citizens take surveys, they don't view it as an opportunity to express their own opinion. They view it as a test and are trying to say the the so called correct answer. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I don't think we should be naive and just assume that problem away and say, oh, of course we can trust these these uh, responses at face value. But we also shouldn't be paralyzed by that. And I think we can try to get to the bottom of it empirically. So one thing that I've been working on, and um, there's also a really good paper I'd recommend by Carrie Radigan and Leah Rabin in the China Quarterly. It's called Reevaluating Political Trust. We're trying to understand just how Chinese citizens take surveys. And one thing you can look at is when do they say don't know? So typically when you ask someone a question like, how satisfied are you with the central government, something like that, you give people the option of of saying nothing at all. And that's sort of a proxy for a couple of different things. Like that can be a proxy for political knowledge, right? So sometimes people say don't know because they don't really have a well-formed opinion But sometimes they say don't know because they might be a little bit nervous. And so typically what we observe in China is that Chinese citizens on sort of direct political questions do say don't know at higher rates uh, than people elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's that's worth noting. Um, But it's not that high. It tends to be about between five and eight percent of people will do that. Consistently
0: across Um, uh, a a bunch of questions that are related to politics.
1: Yeah, across a bunch of questions. But uh, an important feature of this is that it varies across different types of people. So that behavior is particularly high in rural areas. It's particularly high among older citizens um, and generally citizens who might be more politically marginalized, um, women, um, ethnic minorities, people from rural areas and so forth. So one interpretation of that is those types of people might feel a little bit more nervous about expressing their political opinions and and sort of rightfully so, right? right? So like a lot of these surveys, especially the ones done face to face, like someone shows up at your door, knocks on your door in your village and asks you to voice your political opinions for sometimes 30, 40 minutes, an hour. So you would understand why sort of an elderly rural person might feel reluctant to just just say their opinions based on what they've lived through. So I think that's an important caveat when we, when we have our discussion today is it's, there is a little bit of evidence that some of these questions are sensitive. The flip side is when you look at other types of citizens, like young, urban, highly educated citizens, especially people taking surveys online, which is how a lot of surveys are done now, their don't know rates are very low. So comparable with what we would see in a democratic system. So we, I tend to take that as evidence that of that that kind of Ba Ling Ho, Joe Ho type generation, mm-hmm. they're just more willing to to say how they feel, and so I'm more comfortable making conclusions about that type of population. And
0: typically, what do you do when you, you have a body of people who uh, you can sort of identify as self censorer types? You know, who will have a lot of these answers? Do you, do they throw them out? A lot of people who who, who decline to to respond or
1: yeah there's no easy answer you know there's different approaches so some people try to correct for that Mm -hmm. right and they try to say like radigan and ruben that paper raven the the paper i mentioned you know they try to put boundaries on the level of support for the central government say okay let's assume all those people actually hate the government what would the number look like now um let's assume they love the government what would the number look like now so you can that's called imputation that's one technique you can discard them. In, in the paper that we're going to talk about today, one approach I use is to just analyze the people who say they dislike the government. So you can kind of flip the question on its head and say, well, look, there are a subset of people on these surveys that really are willing to say they dislike the Chinese government and dislike the regime. So we know those people aren't self-censoring. Right. So let's understand them. And then that sort of mitigates the issue to some extent, uh, it sure does. And so, yeah, with that out of the way, let's let's dive in now and, and talk about the
0: actual research and your findings. Uh, so, let's talk about first of all these data sets that you did work with. Um, there were uh, three surveys, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, surveys in China are are alive and well. A lot of people will be surprised to know the kind of l- the extent of survey research in China. It's it's been ongoing since the 1980s, and it's a little bit complex from a regulatory perspective. And there's different types of surveys, right? So there's face-to-face surveys, Mm -hmm. which tend to be more expensive and rely a lot on local implementation. And you need a a local partner to usually execute those for you. Then there's online surveys, which can be done in a number of different ways, sometimes through marketing companies. And then there's standard sort of in-class surveys. There's a lot of different approaches. So in this paper, I try to do the same thing three times. I have one survey that's an online survey, one survey that's a nationally representative urban survey, face to face, and then another survey that's a, was conducted in classrooms in Beijing universities. And the hope is that no sample of China, it's hard to get a right, good sample of, of China, it's is really difficult. But if the same answer emerges in three different approaches then then we feel more confident in it so that's that's why I did it that way and in fact that that does seem to be the case right the same sorts of, of profiles
0: emerging all three of these
1: yeah the, the results were, were pretty darn consistent and I actually was surprised that the student sample so there are there is a sample which is not not Beijing University across several universities in Beijing mm-hmm. but sort of university age respondents the same configuration of of attitudes and personality traits emerged in that group. And that was a little surprising to me because you might think that the the position of the party in their social world is different than than in the rest of China. The younger citizens might be more critical or something like that. But in fact, I, I found a pretty darn consistent finding. So that, that's something we can yeah, talk, talk about more. Yeah, later.
0: so we'll, let's not um, you know, spoil anything just yet and we'll, we'll, we'll do the drum roll when there's an appropriate time where you can reveal, do the big reveal. But <laughs> <laughs> first, let's talk a little bit about some of the terminology that's important to understand here. You use what's called a, a Hexaco model of personality structure. Can you explain how that works? you know Hexaco is an, an acronym for
1: six different dyads, I guess.
0: Can you walk us through Hexaco really quickly?
1: Yeah. So personality, um, personality researchers, and personality research is a huge, huge field in and of itself in psychology, and a a long tradition of trying to measure people's traits. And there is a general consensus that personality is real. People have certain traits that reliably predict their behavior across a range of different situations. So if I'm extroverted in one setting, I tend to be extroverted in another Mm -hmm. setting. Um, it's not always the case, but we, we do have personalities. I think that's sort of pr- pretty obvious. Some but, of us, <laughs> um, some of us or some of us, I, I've got none left after this last year, but, um, so that's one thing. And then other features of this that I think are important to emphasize are this idea that personality is in part genetically determined. And, uh, in fact, you can, it manifests itself early, uh, in the life cycle. Right. So there's studies that show that like personality at age three is correlated with personality at, age 27, which is worrisome to me because I have a very uh, challenging four-year-old and I'm like, he's going to be challenging his whole life. Are you kidding? Uh, but um, so anyway, so personality is one part genetics, but it is also the, the, the nurture and environment component is there as well. Right. And then in terms of, of Hexaco and, and how that works is some of the big debates in the personality field is, as I understand them are, are about like, well, what exactly are the traits and how we can measure them? And there's debate here, and there are some people that think there are five traits. That's the so-called five-factor model, the big five. Mm-hmm. And then the model I use is, is a six-factor model, which is, just says that there are in general, six stable traits uh, that we can measure um, across individuals and, importantly, across cultures and countries and contexts. And so that's why I used this particular framework, because it's actually been replicated in many countries across the world, and, and including China. So I felt pretty good about the data. In terms of what the traits are, uh, HEXACO stands for, let me, if I botch this, it's going to completely undermine my credibility. (laughs) Honesty, humility. Honesty, humility is the Uh H. It's the extent to which you're honest and humble and kind of sincere in your dealings. Um, Emotionality is the E. Emotionality is sort of how much do you feel emotion. It's also um, captures things like anxiety and fearfulness. Mm -hmm. X is extroversion versus introversion. Mm -hmm. A is agreeableness, which is the extent to which you're sort of seek, uh, seek agreement and, and harmony in your interactions with other people. Conversely, are you willing to get into it with other people, have an argument? Are you kind of more curmudgeonly cantankerous? <laughs> um, C is conscientiousness, which is the extent to which you seek organization in your life. Are you well-organized, disciplined, diligent, hardworking? And then O is a big one for, for our purposes today. It's called openness to experience. And that tends to capture things like creativity, aesthetic appreciation, artistic nature, uh, intellectualism. So are you open to new, new ideas? Are you trying new things? And so those are the traits. And in the paper, I, I have just really good data on personality traits across the three surveys. And so I, I just ran a full battery of these personality tests across a lot of Chinese citizens. And I was able to then relate those to political attitudes and try to understand what types of people like the Chinese government, like the like the party, what types of people uh, don't like the party, and and even different groups, sort of CCP members versus not CCP members, how do they vary in terms of these different traits?
0: Okay, so what did you expect you might find going into this? And, and in what ways were you surprised? Let me ask about, you know, what your own expectations are, and also sort of what we would expect from what we know about the relationship between personality type and attitude toward uh, the state, toward governments in democratic societies.
1: Yeah, so I, I think my hypothesis was perhaps a little bit unimaginative and was driven by perhaps my own biases as a Westerner, but also reading this, this body of research in that I expected to see what, what we might call like the enlightened discontent model. Right which is which is that, you know, t- how do you become discontent with the Chinese political system? Well, you expose yourself to counter-regime information. You're leaping the Great Firewall. You're studying abroad. Whatever you're doing, you're being exposed to um, information that's counter to the regime's narrative. And you're, for that reason, we would expect people with this O trait, exactly. high openness to experience to, that would be predictive of political discontent in China. And the reason why that had some backing uh, prior to m- my own study, is that in in other contexts, we've seen that openness to experience is highly correlated with sort of progressive and liberal attitudes um, in Western democracies, for example. So it tends to be people with that that trait that gravitate towards the liberal end of the political spectrum. Of course, we know that the liberal end of the American political spectrum isn't isn't the same as the liberal end of the Chinese political spectrum, no, but in general, you you could you could sit in in Princeton or Philadelphia, wherever I was sitting at the time, and and tell yourself that okay, it's those sort of artistic, intellectual types that are going to be most critical of the government, and that trait should pop. Um, so that was sort of the the overarching hypothesis going in. Sure, and now the final drum roll. Well, yeah, the big reveal as as dramatic as an academic uh, academic finding can be the answer we found is that uh, really openness to experience is not systematically related to political discontent and by discontent if people ask me like how do you measure this and there's different ways to go about it but there's a very common question format in in china surveys which is how satisfied are you with the central government right. on a scale of 0 to 10 i think 95% of people will give the government a 6 or above which is is telling but you have about five to five to eight percent of Chinese citizens that on a survey are willing to say they are unhappy with the government mm-hmm. and we don't know what they're unhappy about. It doesn't necessarily mean they want democracy, but that, that was sort of a relatively straightforward and I think transparent way of identifying discontent. And so then the question is, what do those people look like from a personality perspective? And the simple answer is it, the sort of enlightened discontent model is, doesn't appear to be correct at least in, in average, um, those towards sorts of citizens do not have high levels of openness to experience. In fact, they might have slightly lower levels of openness to experience. And the big traits that pop are things like extroversion and agreeableness, and to some extent, fearfulness and anxiety. Or they're very, very and low on the extroversion. Low on those traits. Right. So another way of just summarizing it would be to say, it's really more of like an isolated discontent. So China's discontented citizens, on average, tend to be highly introverted. Um, they tend to be removed from other people. They tend to be, have a more disagreeable personalities, willing, willing to get in arguments with people, have less harmony in their social relationships. And they're also, interestingly, ha- more fearful, more anxious people, um, and less emotionally dependent uh, on others, so they tend to be kind of lone wolf types, and I, I would I would emphasize it's important to say tend to be because this is all about averages, and certainly there are many Chinese citizens that we all know many of them that that fit different models of of discontent, and and not everybody who's discontent with China has this set of personality traits. Um, so I, I would emphasize that, but on average, that seems to be a finding is that isolation, social isolation, and as it manifests itself in personality is related to political discontent in China today. Well, obviously, the question that I think everyone would would immediately go
0: to is, what's the causal direction here? I mean, frustratingly, of course, with this sort of thing, we can never really know for sure. Are these people politically discontented because of their personalities? Or have their personalities been, you know, malformed? By pol- political forces, by political repression, you make the suggestion uh, that there's a kind of feedback loop uh, operating here. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, and 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 I I think the answer is that the the causation probably goes in both directions, right. and and that's not always satisfying to people, and it's it's also something that's very difficult to tease out in any study because personality doesn't really change that much over time. It's hard to measure that, so. All I can say is, look, there's an association here, and then I have to do a little bit more speculation as to why. But the way I think about it is sort of those isolating traits that I identified, introversion, low levels of agreeableness, things like that. In personality studies, there's pretty good evidence that those types of traits tend to be associated with social isolation and a lack of personal and professional success. So you see everything from lower job performance, alcoholism, suicide, depression, those those sorts of things it's certainly not determinative but people with those personality traits tend to have a little bit of a harder time fitting into society. And if you have that then perhaps you're a little bit disgruntled with with your position in society and that leads you to have a little bit less less satisfaction with the political system. So you you can kind of imagine a, a pretty clear line of thinking that goes from from being having that set of traits to, to coming to the conclusion that there's something bad about the Chinese government. Now, then the other side of the story, which I think you importantly raised, is, well, now let's say I'm in kind of that dissident or discontent part of, of the Chinese political space. Maybe I'm participating in a little bit of activism. Maybe I'm having some more subversive conversations. Maybe I'm posting things online that, that the Chinese government doesn't like. Once you start experiencing that, Repression, if that the Chinese repressive apparatus kicks in, you can imagine that that would then lead to an exacerbation of these traits, right? So, certainly fearfulness, which I identified, and anxiety. Oh, yeah. Um, Once you start getting repressed, you probably feel those traits more strongly. Also, introversion, I think, is an important one. Like, I've I've been fortunate to have a lot of conversations with people in the, the activist community in China over the years, and many of them will cite the fact that, like, once they became targeted by the state, they became poisonous, right? Like like people don't want to be around them. They also don't want to bring harm to their friends and family. And so they tend to become socially isolated once they become marked uh, by the state. So the answer is, I think it does flow in both directions. And that's why there's a a feedback loop, which is these traits sort of create a cycle. And in the end, the the net result is you have a set of people who are socially isolated and have those personality traits and, and the most critical citizens are probably in in that space. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I we should
0: probably make clear that the types of individuals that you're focused on here in this paper are not uh, the kind of dissidents to whom or with whom you know many of us are, are are familiar. They're not the prominent regime critics, even though some of them might have told you that they had that sort of passive experience of becoming socially isolated. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're not.
1: No, yeah, that's yeah. That's thank you for for saying that. Yeah. So I and I've been fortunate to get to know that community. A lot of them are based in the part of the country that I'm in, and those individuals have a very different personality profile. They have a lot more traits associated with leadership, like extroversion in particular, and and social confidence and things like that. So, what I'm talking about are people who are sitting in in China, wherever they are voicing discontent with the Chinese government on a survey. Right. And that's very different than leading a social movement or engaging in protests and, and so forth. And you can look at that in the data as well, right? So I, I actually have, in my surveys, I collected political participation variables, and things like petitioning, protesting, mm-hmm. that sort of activity. And you see that those types of people actually have a very different personality profile as well. They tend to be a lot more confident. They're a lot more... Um, less fear, for sure. <laughs> yeah, less fear. That it's a different type of person, which I think is also interesting and speaks to this idea that people engaging in protest in China today aren't necessarily the most discontented with the system itself or with the government itself. And, and Lily Tsai and and Kevin O'Brien and and many others have pointed to this idea that a lot of contentious activity in China might actually be regime reinforcing, right? People are trying to voice their preferences to higher levels of government doesn't necessarily mean that they're deeply dissatisfied with the central government in particular. So these are different groups of people. Um, But I I think it's, yeah, I'm glad you you pointed that out. And and I, I, I got nervous as I wrote this study because my nightmare is that somebody says oh professor says that chinese citizens who are discontent with the government have a a certain personality (laughs) type and and uh, you know and this personality type isn't bad it's that there's no one right personality and so there's different traits and i can identify those traits but I'm not speaking out any particular individual, and I, I just I'm glad you you helped me make that caveat because I think it's really important. Yeah, there's another passage in the, in your paper which I thought was really important was
0: uh, I, I can't quote it chapter and verse right now, but you you talked about the the barriers that one has to get over in order to to express discontent in the first place. I mean that there are all, there's a lot of social pressure that it's not just coming from on high, it's not just the propaganda, it's not just the other barriers that are placed in, in your path, but it's a lot of it is from the family, from your peers, from school, your whole process of socialization. So, yeah, I think that's that's important to point out as well. Now, we've talked about uh, what the, these uh, disgruntled people might look like sort of, you know, in aggregate what about the other side of it? Uh, what, what does a party member's personality structure tend to look like? Uh, cause you, you've included that in your study and I thought it was really fascinating. Quite a contrast.
1: Yeah. And. Unfortunately, in the process of publishing this paper, I had I had a pretty catchy, pithy title called Personality of the Party, which I thought was nice, and that was nixed in the review process, and it became the sweeping political discontent in China is associated with isolating personality traits, which is less catchy. But I do look at uh, the personalities of CCP members as they compare to non-CCP members, and you tend to see that CCP members... Um, have personalities that are, for lack of a better phrasing, associated with personal and professional success. So they they tend to be highly agreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, they get along well with other people. This personality trait is also associated with kind of social conformity, political conformity, which is which makes sense. They tend to be less neurotic, mm-hmm. less fearful, less anxious, which again is is what we might expect. Um, and importantly, they tend to have traits associated with leadership so highly extroverted a lot of social confidence um, like being around other people um, and so forth and so I I joke and this is again this is a a joke but I I, they tend to have a personality profile that's not dissimilar from what I would observe among like an average Princeton student which (laughs) is is, is where I work and and I say that with fondness for my students and that you know these are really dynamic people, and a lot of young, dynamic people in China are gravitating towards the party, which is, is not not news to anybody who's following what's going on and, and understands anything about recruitment into the party. But it's really interesting to see it manifest itself uh, in the data that way. Yeah, I, I think that uh, th- there's a very similar pattern going on with
0: the whole college application process, right? The regime's power rests in part on its ability to, you know, to determine what psychological attributes are going to get rewarded and which ones don't, right, or are even punished, right? So there's some kind of reinforcement going on here. The kids who are in grade school who are conscientious and are gregarious and upbeat and helpful and they, you know, apply themselves and, you know, they're they're open, they're the ones who get, you know, the the red neckerchief, right, that mm-hmm. they become the, the young pioneers. They're the banjang or whatever, and and then... Mm-hmm then you know they move on to the communist youth league and then into party membership right so um, these same traits you know the very traits that they possess are then the basis for picking the next crop it's sort of like you know if we're going to talk about university students it's sort of like the greek system you know when i was in college right of course they're
1: all going to end up being basically the same because <laughs> <laughs> they're
0: picking people who are like them
1: um yeah, yeah, no, and and importantly, you know the traits. I, I'd have to look back at the data. I I actually do think, um, I'd have to look back at it. But I believe party members also have relatively high levels of openness to experience, and yeah, so yeah. they're they're not they're not sort robots. of robots, brainwa- no, right, brainwashed exactly, automatons. Right. You know, they're they're creative people that are trying to contribute to Chinese society in different ways. And the path to success in China lies through the party, lies through the government. So it's it's not that surprising, but I, I think it speaks a little bit to the question we we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about stability, and it's hard to imagine. I I, I wish I could do this study in in sort of 1989, 1988, yeah, yeah. right? And and you wonder if the same configuration of traits was present then, and and. Was it the i mean I w I won't go as far as to say that the party is cool today i don't I don't think that's a, I think that's a leap from the data, but there's little in my data that suggests that um you know people who are kind of more socially adept so have a lot of social capital in in Chinese universities are moving away from the party but th- what I was gonna end say is that i it's if if you have this configuration of political attitudes and and social dynamics you can see why kind of a large-scale political protest aimed at destabilizing the regime would have trouble getting off the ground, right? Yeah, so if... if today. The, if, if the Yeah, today, yeah. If, if the discontent lie on the social periphery and by nature of their personalities have trouble interacting with other people, getting along well with other people, um, you can see why there's a, a certain stability baked into the social structure of China today. And I, I was, was interested to see that play out in the data. So... I'm wondering, did you have a kind of intuition about the
0: difference between the types of individuals with a propensity toward, you know, political dissent in a democracy versus an authoritarian regime? I mean, because it's it's funny to me when I think about this, I'm, this is something that my wife and I talked about really quite early on when we first started to notice that so many kind of regime critics in the Chinese context who, who were in the United States or, or were like, interested in American politics in some way, were gravitating toward Trump. Uh, they tended to be Trump supporters. Now, I ended up actually doing a show on this. I don't know if you heard it, but with, with Lin Yao. Um, and,
1: and, yeah, and it's like a concept of like beaconism. Exactly. I think there's, exactly. there's a paper in um, Journal of Contemporary China. That's I think the one. About That's the to, one. Yeah, so yeah, yeah we, we talked about that beaconism.
0: Uh, Ian Johnson was on that show as well. Um, my wife, though, said that we were ignoring in you know, that whole conversation the the obvious thing to her which was that she said that it just was all about personality her sense was that people who are you know political malcontents in china share a lot of traits she said with people in the united states chinese people i'm talking about who who are interested in trump i i, I wasn't really quite sure what she was getting at but i i after you know talking to her for a while i think she's kind of onto something um you know for her, there were a couple of types there there was there was the one that was was a little too conscientious and and a little too much of a busybody the, the one who had the you know like like the Dad ball riding type or the 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 person who was like the um you know the person shouting, Zui." <laughs> but um i i still i mean for, for her it wasn't like the same exact batch of isolating traits, but it was things like suspicion. Right, a low level of trust, uh, and that general cantankerousness, and I had to say, I think she was onto something there. But uh.
1: yeah, no, and I, I, I want to tread lightly here because I don't want to draw false equivalencies. I, I think, um, I do think there's a set of traits, and and I think your your wife's point about trust is particularly important, right? So you mentioned the the cognitive process one has to go through to to become come yeah. to the come to the conclusion that the Chinese government is wrong. And they're lying to you. Uh, your teachers have been lying to you. Many people around you have been brainwashed or you know, that kind of, that that thought process is not easy to get to and, and requires you to accept a certain level of, of dissonance in your life. And it's much easier to go along with the system, believe the narrative that the party represents the nation and, and it's going to bring about the rejuvenation of the, it's sort of an easier cognitive right. cell. And there's, there's arguments in psychology called system justification theory is, is a, is a big one. And it's the basic idea is that people tend to take the blue pill. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they tend to go along with the right, system right. they're in and, and justify it and understand it. So, so then you talk about discontent elsewhere and, and yeah, I, I think there's a certain, personality type in the United states that's also just generally of the belief that we're being fed a bunch of lies by people and powerful corporations and and the government and so forth and and that sort of disagreeable cantankerousness distrust conspiracy theory mindset is 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 true and on on all sides of the political spectrum probably more true on on the the American right today yeah. um but relatedly like there's there's different types and I think your your wife's point about different types I, I think matters, right? So there's a difference between that person who's, you know, commenting on uh, Kaiser's Twitter posts uh, and, uh, and the, but the person who's out in the street or the person who's part of an organization. Like there's, right. there's different types, right? And so I think there's the set of people that maybe I'm identifying are the people that are more isolated, not as actually politically active but distrustful. And there's a pocket of those people that perhaps can be mobilized by more entrepreneurial types if that if that makes uh, sense. It does make sense. Speaking of, you know, in
0: different political settings, right, toward the end of the piece you draw some comparisons between these results for China and and the results of I suppose, similar work looking at Putin's Russia. Uh, can you talk about what you found and what you believe might account for some of these differences?
1: Yeah, so there's a really good study called Agreeable Authoritarians uh, by Sam Green mm. and Graham Robertson, who do a very similar exercise in Russia, and the findings are are quite similar and they they find that support for Putin or willingness to vote for for Putin, I would believe was their outcome, is highly related to agreeableness that 's the kind of key feature um, that they identify and then people who are conscientious, which is is again sort of seeking organization in your life, kind of diligent like. That type of person, that trait tends to be associated with political conservatism in a lot of places. Sure. They find that is related to support for um, for Putin. So it's it's a similar set of findings. The, the key difference I find in China is that extroversion, sort of social isolation really, really, really matter even more. Right. And so the way I think about it is that perhaps it's the case in authoritarian systems um, that this configuration of personality traits that I identify and, and that Green and Robertson identify as well, maybe that's consistent across a lot of different uh, uh, regimes and the key difference in my mind, I'm not a Russia specialist um, but a key difference in the, in the two political systems is the degree of political competition and, and political participation, the nature of political participation in Russia. In contrast to China, there are elections, there are national elections. Putin can, can, It's not has to go through an electoral process. There are opposition parties in the Duma and so forth, and so there's a little bit more of a social structure and political structure in place for people who are more oppositional thinkers. Yeah, and perhaps that's the reason why they're not quite as isolated. They're not quite as removed um, from the, the the social network as we see in china yeah, another key difference um, but that's my that's a guess yeah. that's a conjecture my,
0: my yes. guess would be i mean in addition to what you said about the competitive the you know somewhat competitive nature of politics in russia uh is that in russia the party the ruling party uh is only you know a thin layer it doesn't permeate the state the party isn't almost coterminous or congruent with the state
1: yeah, the the congruence yeah. between the party and the government, right, and and also and also the patronage network, right. So the nomenclature system in China and just the fact that what is it, a hundred million jobs or something like that, are controlled by the party. Exactly. Um, so they, yeah, I, I think that's a yeah, like a regime capacity story as well would matter. Yeah, for sure. So over the last couple of years, I don't know how many times
0: I have you know been in these debates or watched these debates you know unfurl uh, over if. Culture, uh, however, that's de- defined in, in any given discussion, uh, if culture is like an explanatory, a valuable explanatory variable in different COVID responses, like, you know, not just by state actors, but also by the governed, or in the case of the US, by the ungovernable, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, it's just not a, a big surprise that there's, you know, a ton of resistance from your discipline within, you know, political science to any explanations that, that, invoke culture and i I totally get that um nobody wants to be that you know that essentialist right but when we start seeing patterns in character traits uh that correspond to political attitudes in one country and these patterns look different from the set of character traits that you'd see corresponding to you know similar political attitudes in another country are we that far away from from saying hey there's a difference in
1: in political culture going on here and it's important i mean yeah i th- i think of course there's a difference in political culture between china and the us and and i think of course that's manifesting itself in the covid response and how individual citizens across the two places are viewing their obligation to each other and to and and viewing information coming out of the government i i don't think chinese citizens i think both people in both places are also a little bit distrust distrusting of official narratives about covid because they're been so politicized in both places for different reasons but yeah I, culture is always thorny in political science and i would say it's it hasn't always been that way so a lot of the classics we we read like almond and verba and others um talk about political culture and and try to identify different political cultures and sort of the the ones you hear are like an individualistic political culture right. um, versus, uh, or like a, p- a part participatory political culture or like a subject political culture where someone views themselves as being ruled. Um, I, we tend to avoid those because, yeah, they're a little bit essentialist. And also, just I don't think they capture a lot of the nuance as to what's going on. But the, the one thing I would say on this point is. A key difference for me that that keeps coming out, and and I've been doing some work looking at political education materials in China, and I think it's important to note that political culture is just sort of a shared set of attitudes. That's generally how it's defined: a shared set of attitudes about the political system right. and how it works and what it's all about. Um, and in the U.S., you could say, what are our what are our shared beliefs? Well, it's that we we live in democ in a democracy. Democracy is important. Uh, individual votes and political participation is important. Also, freedom matters, right? right. So the, the role of the government is to protect people's freedoms and, and shouldn't interfere too much in people's lives. Like that's that's a part of our political culture. But a key feature of political culture is that it requires socialization. It's it's passed down from generation to generation. And in 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 places like China, the government sets plays the major role in setting culture. And so and we've seen a renewed emphasis on that under Xi Jinping. So lately I've been looking at political education textbooks at different levels. And what's very striking to me is this this sort of subservience of the individual's goals to that of the nation. Yeah. And that's that's not news to you or your your listeners. But you know, I remember being in Beijing when I was doing field work and you would see these billboards at the beginning of like the China dream era, like yeah. Like they they would just say those two phrases and then so somebody playing chess or or something like this. And I just thought that I captured it neatly, which is like sort of my dream is, is the equivalent of the, the Chinese nation. And so I, I think that's part of why what, what we see the difference in the COVID response is I think there's a little bit more emphasis on individual responsibility to um, public health in China than there is here. That's yeah, it, that's, I didn't mean to talk specifically you know. about the COVID response. Just, 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 <laughs> just
0: that, just that this is yeah. one of those things that brought culture back into the conversation again. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm curious what you understand the difference between political psychology and political culture to be.
1: Yeah, this is that that's a, a good question, and it's, it feels like a, a comprehensive exam question that I would probably be bombing. But um, <laughs> you know, political culture is a is um, a shared set a shared set of beliefs and attitudes, right. um, and that, that give um, order uh, to, this, to this system, It'll help people understand um, their political system. And shared doesn't mean uniform, um, but it does mean sort of a, a widely held right. set of ideas. And I would say kind of the political psychology, um, the, the constellation of traits and attitudes that we observe is a reflection of the political culture, right? So you, you grow up in a political culture and the ideas you gravitate towards, the leaders you gravitate towards are a, are a function of the culture you're in and the traits that you possess. Right. And so I I would say that that's, that's the direction. That's how it, how it flows, but they are they're they're certainly entangled with each other I would pass you on that Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, felt like yeah a I felt like a B plus pass answer, like let them go on to the next stage <laughs> of the program, not a not distinction, but we'll take Old it I'll ask you the harder one, so is
0: China authoritarian because of the political psychology of its people or do they have that particular political psychology because China has its particular authoritarian political system brutal, brutal I'm actually joking <laughs> here because that's, you know, that's not knowable <laughs> um rory what would be the next question though to explore for for anyone who's interested in in doing further work on this set of topics what 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 do you feel like you came into this with where you you feel like the data is there but you didn't yet uh, decide to tackle the question what's the next one
1: yeah i i i'm increasingly thinking about psychology of authoritarian rule and so taking this question of why people support the government seriously, and this is a question, this is not a new question in, in our field, right? There's been a lot of work Absolutely. by Bruce Dixon and Tong Wenfang and Melanie Manning and Pierre Landry and many, many other people on kind of public opinion questions in China. And um, so, But but trying to bring in some of these ideas from psychology into our field and understanding a little bit more about um, how people process information. I think I think that's an area for growth. Another t- a trap that I fall into quite a bit, and certainly in this paper, is you know there's a tendency to say the Chinese people say this or the Ch- like a, the kind of a, a, a tendency to treat Chinese citizens as a monolith. You were pretty
0: good on that on that count. No,
1: I tr- but I, I'm not as good as I should be, and I, I think there's a lot of different configurations of attitudes and beliefs and personalities and forms of political participation that we don't really understand. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done on that, like understanding the new left or understanding, you know, all these different political movements, especially among younger people. I think, um, that would be fruitful. So I, I feel like we're just, um, we have, there's actually a lot of public opinion data in China. Uh, a lot of the interview based work that that's been done, some of it by journalists, like people like Eric fish, you know, that's really compelling work. Um, as well. And so I I think that would be another um, area for growth uh, in this, in this space. Yeah. Uh, By the
0: way, I mean, I I just have to commend you on your list of references in this one paper. It's as long as the damn paper. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a a pretty comprehensive bibliography of work that's been done on psychology in authoritarian states. It's, it's amazing. It's actually.
1: Well, and you can, you can, if your listeners just want to look at the, the references, that's, that's a, completely fine they don't have to read the paper but they just want the reading list that's that's more than other the
0: the, the reading list is really good no i mean you know you read a paper like you read a paper these days you skip the math in the middle you just read the you know that's the diagonal reading style i mean i think we all know how to do that now and we just assume that you guys know what you're doing when it comes to you know regression analyses and all that stuff (laughs) so no it was fantastic i i really really enjoyed it um those of us who are interested in in uh, reading about the nexus of psychology and politics could do worse, definitely, than looking at your references. Um, Rory, you, you are somebody who likes to bring in approaches and ideas from other disciplines. Can you talk about some of the other work that's that's done that kind of inter- or, or cross-disciplinary thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, the China field is, I think, in a really exciting place in that It's just it's growing so fast. And I've been fortunate to I was on our PhD admissions committee this year. And the level of talent coming into social science PhD programs is, is wild. And a lot of it is coming from China. And people are coming in with a lot of training and a lot of different lenses through which to look at the world. So I've had PhD students that are coming in with computer science undergraduate training or math undergraduate training wow. or other other types of training literature other things and so i think i've always just been a believer in kind of cross-pollination across across fields and and how that can produce um new insight and and the person people that i admire deeply on this front um you know someone like Molly Roberts who we're all oh, yeah, saying like Molly, Mo, you know Molly was one of the first people to kind of do big data goes to China and because of her unique training, her, her masters in stats and other things like she's, she led the way for a lot of us and we're all um, trying desperately to, to catch up and and unable to ever do so, but we can, we can just try to lead to follow her wherever she takes us. But, you know, so that's one tradition that's alive and well, but I also think like there's, there's some really good qualitative researchers out there right now who are having a tougher time because it's harder to get access to China who are approaching things from like a more anthropological anthropological approach? Um, Iza Ding uh, is one that comes yeah. to mind. Has done really good ethnography on the Chinese environmental bureaucracy. Maria Repnikova, who you who you mentioned, um, so I I think yeah, like there's just so much. The, the China field is becoming a very very big tent with a lot of people doing a lot of different things, and I think we're we're learning more. And I'm I'm very optimistic about the direction of the field moving forward. The the one catch is. There's just not that many opportunities and the China the chi- the position of China studies in the United States is just wildly lags behind where it should be you know most universities have one or two China specialists in the social sciences if that and we'll have you know 15 people studying the American political system or something like that. And so I, I my hope is that you know in the next five to ten years there's more of an investment in China studies because there's so much talent coming in and not enough opportunity to meet that 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 talent as long as they're not all hijacked
0: by the national security apparatus i mean just seems to be
1: have a boundless (laughs) appetite for them it's just a well and that's not and and i you you know I, i think you're making a joke but i i also don't think it's a bad thing to have like a deep you know deep china specialist entering into the u.s government and i historically there's been an issue where the closer one is to China, the better one's language ability. Um, it seems to be a net negative when trying to get into the yeah, U.S. No, government. That's, that's so the think, problem, yeah. Yeah, The fe- feeding the the kind of PhD population into into the U.S. government or other governments around the world isn't wouldn't be a bad no, no. thing either. That's what I want. Yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, um, fantastic. Rory, uh, it's been such a pleasure to, t- to talk about this paper with you. And uh, congratulations on not just getting bogged down in, in the weeds of... of you know methodology and all that. stuff. So I did all you right. Did great. All right, no, That's no, good. that was fantastic. Cool. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that if you enjoy the work that we do with the Cynical Podcast, the best way you can support us is by subscribing to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It is just chock full of you know great tidbits and things from all over hundreds, literally hundreds of different news sources, uh, and it's you know hand curated by our own Jeremy Goldcorn and his crack team. So that's what you do to support us, and uh, I thank you in advance. Let's move on properly now to recommendations. Rory,
1: what do you have for us? Okay, so I have two. I have one more serious and one more lighthearted. Oh, um, the first is an organization which I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners have, have heard of, but it, in case they haven't, um, there's a think tank, kind of an academic think tank called Center for Security and Emerging Technology, CSET, yeah, which yeah. is out of Georgetown, and I was on their website the other day um, they have roughly fifty people working there now and it's just a a, a new new think tank that's just doing a, re- a lot of really good data driven work on technology and a lot of their work does touch on China and is informs things like immigration policy and and uh, the China initiative and and all of that going on so I have found them to just be a real voice of of reason and, and they're not they're not particularly on one side of the um, the political space when it comes to China, but they're, they're just do really thorough work and I admire what they're doing in their organization. So I'd encourage you to, to check that out. Fact, so that's well, a serious yeah, one. Let me add uh, in, in fact, they're not just not on one side, they
0: are on all sides of it. It's really funny. I was reading, you know, I, I do this China stories podcast where I will, you know, read aloud, uh, you know, long pieces. And there was one from the wire that relied very, very heavily on uh, CSET sources, but they were, Almost uniformly in opposition to one another, they never had the same opinion. Yeah, yeah no, was, and, and, and you
1: don't you don't always see that in a think tank. You and a lot of their a lot of their staff are are relatively young, and they're doing cool data driven work, but they also do things like document translations and so forth. So, um, if you're if you're kind of on the younger uh, end of the China watching community and looking for a place to go work, I I think that would be a fantastic place to, to start your career. All right, and then the less serious one. Um, people, what are you reading, right? What are you right. reading? Well, I, uh, I'm getting through a pandemic with two kids under five. So I'm reading a lot of children's books and I'm going to recommend some for the moms and dads out there. I'm sure you have a lot of time to be listening to podcasts right now. Um, but there's two, there's two guys, Eric and Terry Fon. They're the, they're the Fon brothers. Uh-huh. Um, they are Canadians, but I, I believe they have Chinese heritage. I think their father was Chinese, is Chinese. And just the most fantastic storytellers really imaginative. it. Like you, I read a lot of children's books and a lot of them are pretty dull. They, these guys are are so creative and there's two books called one called the night Garner and one called uh, the Barnabas project that are our favorite children's books. Oh, and great. Um, so I'd recommend those to anybody looking to mix up their library. Fantastic. Thanks. Great recommendations. I am actually
0: making my way through some of the books that have been recommended by recent guests. So there's nothing new uh, from me on the book front. In fact, the, the the one that I just published or I will have published today, we're recording on January 13th uh, with Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp is so full of book recommendations, either that we sort of mentioned in passing or that we actually recommend that it's going to take me a while to get through. But the one thing that I have been doing, uh, like so many other of my sort of low willpower friends on social media, is playing the game Wordle, uh,
1: I feel like I have to do it just to understand the Yeah, it's a
0: phenomenon, you know? and I, I know that I'm i I'm, I'm just a cliche by t- talking about this even. Um, but
1: am I gonna lose like a day of my no, life? No, 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 no. That's get, the thing. Can I That's get in the there? great
0: thing about it is they only give you one a day, and you know, Ooh, you, so it's, right. it's it's bounded. It's bounded, and and yeah, I mean, you can yield Jones for doing more of them because it's it's pretty fun. It's Mastermind, but with words. It's sort of Hangman meets Mastermind. It's super super simple. But it's fun, I mean it's incredibly fun, and I don't know how i have ended up spending way more time actually discussing optimal strategies with with different friends of mine. A couple of guys I knew at do. one of them has decided to write like an algorithm that to, to...
1: I'm sure someone's out there has like coded this yeah, thing up yeah, right yeah, now.
0: they have I mean there have been you know clones and knockoffs but also just sort of solving agents uh for it. But I, I actually have found myself this every night for the last week staying up until midnight when the next puzzle drops. Um, oh, to, man. To
1: that's, not, that's not what I need right nah, now, but, but I, uh, I'm going to check yeah, it out. Yeah, I
0: mean, then by 1210, I've tweeted my score. You know, <laughs> I should be ashamed of myself. And yet, <laughs> and yet.
1: It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. Got to get through January. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, Kaiser. Well. Yeah, Rory.
0: Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We'd be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.